Welcome to Basketball Network. My name is Harry, and today we'll be talking to coaching legend George Carl, the sixth winningest coach in NBA history. George, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. I'm uh, interested in your network, and I always love talking basketball, so let's have some fun. Awesome. Sounds like a plan. George, what are your thoughts on the NBA Finals, just the, the entire Orlando experience? You know, did, did you think the Lakers were going to win it all? Uh, what did you think of the bubble? <laughs> oh, I had, uh, I had up and down feelings on the bubble. Uh, you know, I, you know, I'm 70, almost 70 years old. The pandemic is kind of messed around with America and messed around with the world. Um, you know, there was a part of me that said we shouldn't do it. And then there was a part of me when we did it, I was happy about it. So I was jumping from side to side of the fence. You know, sometimes I was for it. But I loved the game of basketball. And I thought the game itself was, was pretty good basketball. But there was a lot of bad basketball, too. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad they, they're trying to figure it out. And uh, I still think they have at least a, another year, maybe two. Um, it's not going to be the same as it has been in the past. The one thing the bubble proved to me that the fans are a big part of the game. Uh, I miss the fans. The games didn't seem the same to me. They seemed a little artificial. Uh, you know, fake, fake noises and you could hear noises. It just wasn't the same as 20,000 people in a building yelling and screaming for their home team. Uh, I was happy that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I, I love LeBron. I think LeBron's a great player, and I was happy that he won. Uh, you know, I'm a North Carolina guy, and I'm always going to think Michael's better than LeBron, but I'm going to tell you, LeBron's damn good. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of sad that Magic never gets thrown into that conversation because I thought Magic was pretty special too. And it's, a, it's an argument for the decades. You know, whatever decade you played, you're probably going to say Michael was the best or Magic was the best. And, and fortunately, I got to coach and play against all of them. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I know LeBron was, was the reason the Lakers won. They were... And Anthony Davis, I think, finally showed up on the, the Broadway show of NBA playoffs. He played really, really well. And I thought they were really well coached. I thought, I thought uh, they did a great job. Their coaching staff really did a first-class job. And uh, I was happy. I mean, I got, I, got to watch, I got to watch basketball in the middle of, of August and October. And I'm going, it's a little weird, but... Uh, it was really impressive. Sorry. Go, go ahead. Just wanted to say it was really, and it is really impressive, you know, everything that's going on in, in, in the world and sports, but it was just great to see basketball again, like you said. And I hope we'll be watching basketball um, normally, you know, with fans uh, filling these arenas again very, very soon. I agree 100%. I mean, uh, I don't know what's going to happen when they're going to start it up again. Uh, I think we're all trying to figure it out. And unfortunately, right now, we're in a negative a pandemic mentality. Our country right now is, you know, Denver, I live in Denver, and Denver is, went back to phase three. So they're, they're putting more restrictions on, on restaurants and on, on essential needs and stuff like that. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You know, it's. Uh, I talked. Uh, I, talked know, couple, I talked to a couple of guys. Um, um, you know, just NBA players recently, and there are talks that the league will uh, start up again late December, which is really soon and kind of. Uh, well, <laughs> maybe even too soon because I, I just think that they're going to go for the same experience again and I just wouldn't want to see the game without fans. But let's see what happens. Time will show. <laughs> yeah, I think we're speculating right now. So I think, uh, you know, I think Adam Silver does a great job. His leadership is first class. Uh, you know, I trust that he'll make good decisions and uh, has made great decisions and they made it work. But... I'm not sure the bubble's the way to go, but they might have to do it a little bit next year too. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's wait and see. Um, Coach, you mentioned that you're a North Carolina guy. Um, what was it like playing under Coach Dean Smith at UNC? Do you, do you consider him his coaching? Do you consider him your coaching mentor? And I guess what, 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 what were some of the key takeaways that you took away from Coach, Coach Smith and applied to your coaching? Everything. I went to Carolina as a high school All-American, scored 35 points a game, was a scorer, and Coach Smith made me a point guard. And it took him, I mean, I mean, uh, all of a sudden I went from trying to score 30 every night to I wasn't allowed to score in a lot of ways at Carolina. It was shot selection first and ball movement and passing and the point guard was a responsible man of the defense and offensive initiating both. Um, my whole life I've looked at coach Smith as not only a mentor, but a second father. He was very special to me. I miss him. Uh, I miss coach Guthridge. I miss, I miss so many things that came from my four or five years in North Carolina. And I think it's, a blessing in my life that I'm a, I'm still a part of the North Carolina fraternity. Um, you know, so many of my mentors are North Carolina guys, you know, Larry Brown, Doug Moe, uh, Roy Williams. They're all in my life. And because of that, I'm, I'm, I feel I'm always, uh, you know, Carolina is never going to be a bad basketball team. They didn't have a very good year last year. But I, I know they're going to bounce back. They're always going to be one of the top 10 teams probably in college basketball. So I get to go back to Chapel Hill and hang out and play golf and talk hoop. That's probably awesome. the most fun things I do. That's awesome. After, after Carolina, you got drafted uh, to the league, but you uh, ended up playing in the NBA, or I guess you chose to play in the NBA for San Antonio. Uh, you played professionally for five years, then decided to retire at uh, age of 26. I think your first three years were, were, were kind of good. You, you got some you know, playing time, but I guess what was the reason behind you going, going into retirement at, at such a young age? <clears throat> I had bad knees. I, I had at least three knee surgeries. After my third year, I had knee surgery. Tried to come back. Um, didn't work. Had another knee surgery, missed it fourth year. And by the fifth year, as Doug Moe always kept telling me, I was a big stiff after that. And I wasn't fast enough or whatever. He didn't think I was good enough. So he asked me to be a coach. So I became an assistant coach. And um, had fun. And, uh, you know, that was the ABA, MBA year. 
And San Antonio was an ABA team that moved into the NBA. Um, and I love San Antonio. San Antonio, if I didn't live in Denver, I might live in San Antonio. I mean, those, those are probably, I, I love Seattle, but I can't handle rain. But, you know, of all my stops, uh, Denver and San Antonio are probably two of my favorite, along with Madrid. And some, you know, my time in Madrid is always special in my heart. And, uh, you know, my son played in Germany and played in Italy and played in Spain. He played everywhere over there. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I love I love European basketball. I, I mean, I've always felt and respected it. I remember in 1972, uh, Carolina went to Madrid and played Real Madrid in the Christmas tournament, and we won. We 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 won a very difficult game in the final. So the and, uh, I, team beat the pros in 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 Europe. In North Carolina in 1972, went to Madrid and won their Christmas tournament against the pros, yes. Wow. It was fun. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, I, when I coached in Madrid, I had the tragedy of, of Fernando Martin being killed on my watch as coach. And that, that is probably the most emotional three days of my life. We had to play a game that night. I mean, we had to play a game on the night he – on the day he was buried. And I'll always remember so many things about that day, especially when I think we were, we played Pauk in, in Madrid. And I think we were down 16 points at halftime. And basically I went into the locker room and said, hey, we have every reason not to win this game. Other than Fernando probably thinks we're a bunch of sissies. Mm-hmm. And we went out, and I remember in the first seven minutes of the second half, a 15-point th- deficit went to an 18-point lead in about seven minutes. And it still is the most, probably most memorable seven minutes of my basketball career. That's an amazing, incredible story. Uh, can you talk more about your experience in Madrid? You know, how did Europeans adjust to the American coaching? <clears throat> Well, in a lot of ways, I think I grew up in Madrid. I was kind of a young coach in the NBA that had some success, but also had some failure. Um, to be blunt, my ego was out of control. And I, I took a young family over to Madrid. And I had to be more stable, more mature, more committed for my family. And also the coach in a country that I didn't speak their language. And uh, I became very close to my basketball team. I really enjoyed them. Um, we had some success. They fired me after the one year because we didn't win a championship. We lost in my first year, we lost to um, uh, Messina in the, fi- in the finals of uh, Milano. And it was, he was coaching Milan. No, he was coaching Bologna. Okay. And uh, we played in Florence, which is very close to Bologna for the finals. Wasn't, wasn't much of a home. They said it wasn't, it was a neutral site, but it was a home court, really. <laughs> and what's funny, Gallo, uh, Danilo, mm-hmm. Gallo, his dad played on that team. Mm-hmm. And Michael Ray Richardson played on that team. So I kind of knew. I got, I've befriended a lot of people from then. Mm-hmm. 
but I grew up as being more responsible, being more respectful of my challenge. Um, and I think I have no idea how Seattle pulls me out. I go back. I got fired. I went back and coached in the CBA, had a great year. And then came back. And, and then I came back. And in the middle of the season, Bob Whitson in Seattle calls me up and asks me to come back to be, be their coach. And I became an NBA coach after that for a long, long time. But I, I think my maturity in Madrid, and the moments I had with the tragedy of, of, of Fernando having to be balanced and stable mm -hmm. instead of maybe wild and egotistical, I think it was very important to me. And, and, and the game of basketball is really good in Europe. Mm -hmm. at, the, at that time, I thought it was more college-oriented, more college philosophies. But I think now European basketball has gotten to be a lot of NBA philosophies. And I really I, – I saw my son play over there, and I love – I think a very good game. Uh, and it taught me a lot about the game. It taught me zones, and it taught me – boxing ones and offenses that you had to have that worked against everything, just not, you know, specific against what defense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Madrid was trying to beat Barcelona. Barcelona always beat us. But my last year, um, they didn't, I left in, at the end of January, I left. And they would go on to win the championship that year. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm a partial champion in Europe. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you about the Real Madrid the legend, uh, Dražen Petrovic, the late great Dražen Petrovic. Uh, you, you missed him when you, you, know, you went back and, uh, back and forth, and I guess he started uh, his NBA career in 89, and that's when you, that's when you were in, uh, in Madrid. I got him for about, I got him for about oh, six, eight weeks. I, he, he, was on, he was in our training camp my first year. And uh, just an unbelievable player. I mean, cocky, confident, uh, could do everything on the basketball court. Um, and I remember, I still remember him walking up to me after a practice. And we had night practices, probably eight, nine o'clock at night, maybe 10. And he walked up to me and he gave me a big hug. And what's funny is he, he left me his Porsche wow. and I drove his Porsche in your, in Madrid that whole season. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, That's and you know, uh, I just, uh, I, I, you know, he, he was represented by St. Warren Legary. And so Warren represented me. So we, you know, we communicated and I had two cars in Europe <laughs> instead of just one. Uh, that, that, that's awesome, awesome story. How do you, how do you explain, uh, just to briefly touch upon Drajan, so he averaged like 30, close to 30 points with Madrid uh, the year prior to going to the NBA, and then he was uh, benched by Rick Edelman in Portland uh, the following year and then the year after. He didn't really get a lot of playing time. How do you, I guess, how do you explain, you know, such a high caliber guy going in to the NBA and just gets bench benched. Was it you know was it a different time or was was there just a different perception with with uh, international players back then? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know the circumstances. All I know is Portland was a really good basketball team at that time, too. I mean, they didn't have a bad – he was benched because they had a guy named Clyde Drexler playing in front of him. It was pretty good. Um, you know, the circumstances, I think, I think Euro European players, kind of like college players, have to adapt to the NBA. I mean, Drazen was used to playing one or two games a week, and now you're playing four or five games a week. So travel, uh, accustoming yourself to the, the language, living in a foreign country. Um, I, mean, I mean, there's a lot of things that you have to adapt to, plus you got to make a step. You got to make a step to be a better player. Mm -hmm. You got to be smarter, better, stronger, faster. The game is bigger, faster, quicker. And adjusting to that takes some time. And when you're a team like Portland, that you have to win 50, 55 games, you know, coaches are, are, are a little sensitive to that. Today's game is more open to losing with development. You know, if you got a young player and, and management's well, oh, okay, we're only going to win 25 games, but we want to develop our first round draft pick or our free agent from Europe. Uh, I think we're more open to that now than we were in the, in the 80s and 90s. I think there was more pressure on coaches to win. And uh, the game, game is always changing. That's what I love about it so much is, you know, one of my conversations with coaches all the time, where's the game going to be three years from now, five years from now? I mean, I mean, did we realize that the big man would be fading, being phased out in a lot of ways to the athlete, to, to the six, eight athlete or, or the six, nine shooter? Uh, size has become a, a discussion. You do you need size to win an NBA basketball game. I still think size is really important. But one question I always get is, will, will the big man ever get back to where they once were, where they were the dominant factor in the NBA? And I'm not sure that's going to happen. I think the big, all the big guys are probably going to be like Anthony Davis. They can do everything. They're going to be able to shoot. They're going to be able to play make. And they're going to be able to defend and hopefully be able to run the pick and roll game and also do some dirty work in the paint with shot blocks and rebounding. You know, kind of got to miss the old school um, big men with Sean, Ke <laughs> with Sean Kemp and, uh, you know, Shaquille O'Neal and these guys. But I guess the game's evolved so much. And like you said, big men are getting versatile and, who knows if we're going to see that uh, ever again, but I just miss that good old kind of bully ball that we used to see back in the day. Well, you know, the, the, the rule changes and how the game is refereed has made the, the freedom of movement with the ball is easier than posting up a big guy in a wrestling match. You know, there, there's a there's, there's hand-to-hand -hand combat going on in the paint. But no one can touch the point guard with the ball. So, you know, I think it's – I think the game has gotten soft a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm kind of in your, your school of 
I, I like a little physical contact. I couldn't have played with today's rules. I had to, I had to hand check and grab and hold because I wasn't, I wasn't quick enough to stay with a lot of the point guards. Uh, coach, in, in 92, uh, you became the head coach of uh, the Seattle Supersonics. How excited were you to coach that group of players? Oh, I thought it was a blessing. You know, I'm, I, I didn't think I was getting back in the NBA. I actually was, per, per, I was pursuing college jobs. And, you know, if, if things fell apart in Madrid, which they normally do with if you don't win everything, you usually fall apart. Um, I was thinking about going and being a, a coach, maybe an assistant coach at Carolina, assistant coach at, with Rick Majeres. A couple other friends and I said, you know, spend a year or two with me, learn the college game, go coach college. And I know where I get back in the NBA and I get a team that's kind of made for me, a bunch of athletes, um, and a bunch of guys that kind of like to play defense, create the game with defense. And so I sat there and, you know, for, I, I remember the first six, seven, eight, nine, ten games, I was still speaking Spanish on the bench. And, you know, I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I mean, it was just hilarious. <laughs> but, you know, Gary and Sean were gifts. But so were Detlef and Sam Perkins and Nate McMillan and Hersey Hawkins and, I mean, I had fun coaching Dana Bears and Eddie Johnson and Ricky Pierce, Derek McKee. I'm missing some awful good players along the way. But the team that went to the finals against Michael was really good. That was a really, really disciplined, tough-minded. Um, and I really think if we had a healthy Nate McMillan, we could have beaten the Bulls. But, you know, Nate had knee problems all through the playoffs. I think he played three or four games in the playoffs. And in those games, I think we won three of them. But he, he was playing on one leg, and he finally couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I, um, I wanted to give you a shout-out for your uh, Truth and Basketball podcast, uh, with, yeah. which, I, which I actually listened, uh, listened to uh, you know, for the last uh, couple of episodes. And uh, in, in one of those, you guys talked about uh, the – Clyde Drexler trade that nearly happened that could have pushed you guys, uh, you know, uh, to, to a game seven and I guess a win against the Bulls that year. Do you think that that would have happened? It had, you know, had, had, you had Clyde? Uh, you know, I think Clyde, Clyde won championships, but he won them when Michael Jordan was playing basketball. I mean, when he was playing baseball. <laughs> So I'm not, I'm not sure would have pushed this over the end. Uh, but we were a good team. I mean, um, we were a very, very good defensive team and an above average to good offensive team. I don't know if you remember the series. The series was a defensive series. We couldn't score against them. They couldn't score against us. I mean, most of the games were probably in the 80s, maybe in the 90s. I think we got over a hundred and a couple wins at home, but that's it. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, I look back on, you know, I, I, I would probably say Nate being healthy and we had Clyde Drexler then, I think we'd have a hell of a shot. We'd have like three guys go cover Michael. 
uh, our defense, I think, would have been as effective as theirs. Their defense, I, I've watched those games, and we couldn't score. I was an awful offensive coach in those games. <laughs> do, do you think, uh, I guess, do, do you wish you, 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 know, you put uh, Gary on Michael sooner? Because I think you made that adjustment in game four, and then it kind of, you know, it went well. Would it, would it be different, you know, had Gary uh, defended Michael all the time? Well, of course. I mean, we can, I mean, coulda, woulda, shoulda is all about the NBA. Yeah. Um, my feeling is I, it was a mistake. I don't know if it was a mistake that lost us, but it was a mistake I should have done it earlier or at least experimented with it earlier. But Gary was hurt. Gary was not 100% in that series. He had a calf muscle pull that I would say 70% of the players I've coached would have not tried to play. So we were kind of protecting Gary because we needed him and at the offensive end of the court too. So, you know, Michael is, is fun competing against Michael and, um, If you go back and look at the stats, we did a good job of Michael, except for one game. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Michael that beat us. It was Rodman and, and Kukoc and, and Pippen and, and their defense more than, I think, Michael. Even though Michael got the MVP, uh, he, the only breakout game he had against us was game four. You know, he had, he had a 30, maybe a 40-point game that night. But all the other games, we... We didn't stop him, but we made him shoot under 40%. He shot a poor percentage. He had some turnovers thrown in. I thought we did an adequate goblin, but I mean, great players are fun to compete against because it's always woulda, coulda, shoulda. Yeah, you certainly did a good job of containing Michael as much as you can contain Michael Jordan. Um, Is there maybe a specific anecdote you remember from that series that uh, you, know, you can share with us, something we don't know, maybe something about your approach uh, <coughs> with the Bulls? How do you even prepare for, for, for a series like that? Well, you know, I mean, the amazing thing about making the NBA Finals is you're, you're fatigued. You're tired. You've won three playoff series. We, we just got done beating Utah in the seventh game in the conference finals in, in, in a hell of a game, probably one of my favorite games. Um, you know, so you got Stockton Malone, and then you, I, think you got, I think we had two days to prepare for Michael. So you, you try to figure out, you know, my belief was don't make the plan complicated unless you have to. And we were... We were a very – basketball our, – our, our, our basketball IQ was good. So we took a lot of what we were doing against Utah and kind of moved it over to doing it against Chicago. Um, but to be honest with you, we lost that series in travel. And we lost the first two games, very competitive games, very close games. I think the second game they blew us out at the end, but it was a close – it was a fourth quarter game. And it was a Friday night in Chicago. And our plans, and I think I, I'm not sure I made these plans. It might have been me. 
but it might have been management that made the plans. Our plans was to fly home after the game. Well, we had a snowstorm on the way home, had to stop in Billings, Montana to refuel, got a lot of wind. Basically, we got to bed about 4.30 in the morning. Wow. That's Saturday morning. We play Sunday at 12.30 in the afternoon. So we had to practice Saturday. We didn't have a shoot around before the game. And that just messed our, you know, all this sleep stuff now. Everybody says sleep deprived and all that stuff that goes into resting our players. Our, the game that we were awful in was game three. The game Michael got off. Mm-hmm. That was the only game I thought we played beneath our talent. And um, they go up 3-0. We fought hard. We showed our heart. We showed our competitive spirit. Take it, win, win two more at home, and then go back to Chicago. But that, that game that we gave to them, I'm going to say by, by travel. And what's funny about it, Phil Jackson knows that. My son worked, played for Phil, and I, and, you know, coaches the Lakers. And I saw Phil, you know, 10 years after that game, after that series. And he said, you ever regret flying home that night? And started laughing at me. Wow. You know, and I'm going, what a smart ass. You know, okay. <laughs> okay, I was stupid. Yeah, you're right. But, you know, you, you, know, you, you never learn. You learn sometimes by mistakes. That was a mistake. Um, You guys had, after 96, you had two more really, you know, solid seasons, uh, but you were never able able to make such a deep run in the playoffs. Uh, What was the main reason for this? Well, you know, my favorite part of my career is probably Peyton and Kim versus Stockton and Malone. Up until those last two years, we won most of the battles against Stockton and Malone. Well, we never lost to them in those two years. We didn't play them head-to-head. Um, I think we lost to Houston one year, That then lost to Utah. I think we, Barkley was on that team. I think that was one year. And I don't remember the second year. Um, but, you know... Stockton, Malone, Kemp, and Peyton, none of, none of those guys ever won a championship. Basically because of a guy named Michael Jordan. Those were such great teams, both, you know, Utah and you guys. That's unbelievable. Yeah, someone, someone told me that my time when Stockton, Malone, and me, and Sloan, and Stockton, I mean, Stockton, Malone, and Sloan, and Peyton, Kemp, and me, someone told me this. I don't know if it's true or not. That we played like 155 times, and the record is like 76, 75. <laughs> I mean, it's that close. Unbelievable. So. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, I wanted to talk, talk about your tenure uh, with uh, the Nuggets. Uh, you became their you know, uh, head coach in 2005. You spent eight, uh, nine years there. And uh, in your latest, I think, episode of your podcast, Truth and Basketball, you and Brett hosted Danilo Gallinari, like you briefly mentioned. Um, and you went on record saying that the 2012-13 Nuggets was your favorite team uh, to coach. Can you just talk more about that and why was that your favorite team? 
Well, you know, so much, so much about sport is perseverance. And we make the mellow trade and everybody says we're going to be awful. You know, everybody says we're going to the bottom, that we're, we're a rebuilding team. And all the guys that we picked off of the trade, because I think it's one of the greatest trades ever. We got five guys in that trade. Uh, we got Felton, Gallo, Wilson, Costa Cufus, and Timo Mozgov. And, and a couple draft picks. And one of the draft picks was Kenneth Free. So you get six guys that all made over $10 million. All those guys went on to have careers that, that got them an NBA contract over $10 million. Mozgov did, Free did, Kostas Kufus did, uh, Gallo and Wilson Chandler. And, and Raymond Felton was the point guard that I played with Ty Lawson. And then Raymond didn't want to, Raymond didn't want to be a, a backup. He wanted to be a starter, so we traded him to Portland, got Andre Miller, who's one of my favorite players of all time. I love Andre. I think Andre's one of the greatest passers in the NBA history. So you trade, you know, the only negative about the, the Mello trade was we had to put Chauncey in. Mm -hmm. If I would I wish we would have been able to keep Chauncey and then let Ty and Chauncey figure out the point guard position for the next five years. But to make the trade, we had to put Chauncey in it. Um, and because you trade Chauncey and Mello, you're two all-stars. Everybody thinks you're going to go to the, you know, go in the, in the garbage can. And our guys had great attitude. They were fearless. They were coachable. They loved the gym. They got better. Everything our coach wanted was, uh, was that team. And we would come back, play very well at the end of that year, and then go on, of course, and play, win 57 games, I think, in the next year and, and lose in the first round. And got, we got upset by a team that would go on to win four championships or three championships. So I don't know if we got upset because yeah. Gallo got hurt. Uh, Gallo didn't play in that playoff series, and I still think we would have won if he did. But I thought we were on the brink to becoming a really good team. And the team that came really good is Golden State. Mm -hmm. But yeah. we, we self-destructed. Masai went to Toronto. My, our GM went to Toronto. They fired me for, I don't know, they say they got tired of me. And um, a team that I thought was on the, on the cusp of being a top four team in the NBA with maybe one major trade or one change, blew up. You know, they didn't make the playoffs for seven, six or seven years, I think. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the team being very uh, coachable and fun to be around with. Um, can you talk more about coaching, um, I guess, the earlier years of the Nuggets, you know, coaching Carmelo and uh, Allen Iverson? You know, what was it like coaching superstars and was there a lot of handling of egos or were they also coachable? Oh, Denver was crazy. I mean, we had some, we had some strange cats, but they, what I loved about all of them was they competed. Uh, Mello, you know, Kenyon Martin, Marcus Camby, uh, J.R. Smith, 
Birdman, Nene. You had a lot of different personalities, a lot of different forms. But the, they, what I liked about them was they, they kind of had a, they were arguable people. They were confrontational people, but they wanted to learn. They wanted to get better and they wanted to win. And in today's game, you don't get the perfect, you don't get dealt the perfect hand. You gotta, you gotta figure out how to manage somebody that might not totally buy into your, your, your philosophies. But in the same sense, uh, when we got Chauncey on that team, his leadership and his discipline that he brought from Detroit was, you know, we weren't very, we started that season struggling. We made the trade like in the first 10 days of the NBA season. And within two weeks, we knew that we were going to be good. Chauncey walked in that locker room and cleaned it up really fast. And I'm happy to see Chauncey back in, back in the NBA as an associate head coach in L.A. I think he's going to be a head coach someday and it'd be a damn good. Harry, excuse me for a minute. I got to let my dog out. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Sorry about that. No, that's fine. I, I have a dog myself, so I know when they get crazy. <laughs> uh, I got an old 14-year-old Labrador that sometimes doesn't like me when I don't pay attention to him. <laughs> yeah, got to keep that eye contact uh, with them all the time. Um, recently, I guess, in, actually in the last few days, I think uh, that the Nuggets left off Carmelo off of their all-time uh, team graphic. So there was, there was like an all-time team graphic that they put on social media. He was not there. Uh, do you think he deserves uh, to be there? You know, does he belong in the all-time Nuggets team? Well, I think he does, you know. Uh, again, it's generational. You know, I played with Bobby Jones in North Carolina. I know David Thompson pretty well. Some of the old-time Nuggets are great players. Uh, but, you know, Melo is an incredible, great offensive player. And I'm happy that he had a good, good run in Portland. I hope he, hope he has a couple more years left of him in the NBA. Uh, but, you know, I've never coached the guy that won a lot of games because he could just – no one could stop him. And, you know, we always had an advantage because he was – a lot of nights he was the best player on the court for us. And that's a huge advantage in the NBA. Um, you know, I've only coached one guy that's in the Hall of Fame. That's Gary Payton. I think Sean should be in the Hall of Fame. Um. In the same sense, I, I think Melo should belong in the Hall of Fame as, um, I mean, he, he's just a special, special player. And I really, I'm, I, I'm, I'm actually an advocate of opening, the Hall of Fame should open up their windows a little bit more and let, it seem to have, they like a small class rather than a larger class. And there are general managers and there are scouts and there are assistant coaches uh, there are trainers that deserve to be in the Basketball Hall of Fame that don't get any love at all. And I think we should celebrate, you know, guys like Doug Moe, you know, guy, you know, guys that 
You know, they, he brought fast break basketball back to the NBA. And the way the game play is playing now, Doug Moe was playing that in 1980. You know, so, I mean, Doug Moe never, I don't even think he ever won a Western Conference, never, got the West Conference final once. Um, America gets hung up on championships. And there are a lot of great coaches that have never won championships. Me being one. I'm not a great coach, but I'm on that list. But Rick Majerus and Jerry Sloan and, I mean, there are, there are a lot of guys. And we get hung up on, you know, a coach that delivers excellence for 25 years and a guy that wins the championship because he has a better team than everybody else. And then it doesn't have much of a career. You know, you got, you got to be more realistic to uh, the value of good coaching. I, I definitely agree with you. And they should think, think about reevaluating their criteria, you know, uh, with the Basketball Hall of Fame. I wanted to talk to you about the 08 09 uh, Nuggets team. And that was when you guys went deep into the playoffs and faced uh, the LA Lakers team. Uh, what was it like going up, uh, going, going up against uh, Kobe Bryant? And what was your game plan uh, just facing him in that series? Our game plan was control everybody else, put your best defender on Kobe, and hopefully he won't shoot the ball well. We felt they had – we felt – we wanted Kobe to try to be selfish. We tried to force him into making selfish individual decisions. And he had some big games in that series. Don't get me wrong. He played great. Um, but, you know, we lost two games, two close games in, in, in that series by not getting the ball inbounds from the sideline out of bounds. I think about 35, 40 seconds. I think game is games, maybe game three and maybe game five. Um, <clears throat> I don't recall exactly, but it was a great series. I mean, we, you know, I look back at that series and a lot of, a lot of heart, heartache, a lot of heartache because, you know, getting, winning a championship would have been so special for the city of Denver and also for, for all the players. Um, Came up short. The next year, I thought, was our best team. Uh, I coached the All-Star game that year, having the best record at All-Star break. And that's when I came down with cancer. And I couldn't finish the season. And we kind of fell apart. And then I think the next year was when Melo asked to be traded. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, you know, the one thing about all these teams that think they, they're good enough to win it and they think they're going to hang around, it's harder to – sometimes it's harder to hang around than you think it is. But, you know, you know, the AI mellow experience didn't work. We got Chauncey, it worked. And to be honest with you, you know, when we made the mellow trade, it, it even worked better. I mean, we were kind of changing our offense into the, the way the game is played now. And I always played fast, but we were trying to play faster. Mm -hmm. and, and Mello and AI kind of bought into it, but didn't really buy into it. But the new guys, they all bought into it, and it, and really it was fun. I mean, the year we traded, got rid of Mello, the next year we led the NBA in scoring. Mm 
I think we led the NBA in scoring or in top two or three the next two, two years. And as I said, we didn't have an all-star. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't even have an all-star who got any votes. I mean, our best player was probably Ty Lawson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Coach, uh, your latest uh, head coaching job was with the Sacramento Kings. And I guess uh, something that really marked your time there was your relationship with DeMarcus Cousins. Sorry, I have to ask you this. I know everybody you know, uh, wants to hear about this. Can you just talk more about DeMarcus and um, what is it that you don't like about him? <laughs> the, only, the only thing I would bring to the table on Mark DeMarcus is he has negative energy. And when things go wrong, he has powerful nigger energy. When the game, I mean, the NBA has a flow, has up, you're, up, you're, you're playing good, you're playing at, and then you go to the bottom. And you got to be able to persevere through the tough times. And um, I love him as a player. He's not a bad guy. He's a good guy, smart guy, has good basketball IQ. And I'm, I'm hoping he figures out his career. You know, I mean, he's been trying to play on a winning team and he's gotten hurt these last couple of years, uh, Golden State. And then, of course, now I think it was with the Lakers two years ago. Um, I, ho- I hope he gets healthy and hope I hope he can figure a chance of playing maybe with a championship team. Um, but, you know, as I said before, there are co- players – There are a lot of players coming in different, different, different packages. And Mello was difficult. Mello, you know, you know, played the blame and shame game way too much. In the NBA, if you play the blame and shame game, negative energy, and your locker room is going to be a little bit crazy. Um, pointing fingers doesn't win games. Trusting, and trusting the team and pointing the finger at yourself wins games. Um, and I never figured, I, you know, I didn't figure it out. You know, the organization out there didn't want to give me the influence. Um, they didn't want to listen to my thoughts on how to build my team or our team. And I'm not saying that's good or bad or indifferent. The other places I've been, I had tremendously more influence. But in Sacramento, they, they closed that door and just said, go coach. Mm-hmm. And I think more and more NBA teams are going that way. You know, more and more NBA coaches don't have a lot of input. Their job is to go coach uh, what, what we bring to you. I don't think that's the way it should be. I think, I think organizations got to be a team. They got to work together. They got to trust each other. They got to believe in each other. My opinion might not agree, be agree. You might not agree with my opinion, but we got to trust each other. And I'm not sure that was happening out in Sacramento. Good point. Um, I wanted to briefly touch upon your nickname, uh, the Cancer Slayer, and congratulate you for beating, you know, for winning the fight uh, three times already. Um, are you ready and willing to coach again now that you're, you know, healthy? You know, I, my hope... I, my hope is, I hope to get back in the gym. I would love to have a consulting situation now because I have a 16-year-old daughter. She's, she'll graduate from high school in two years, year and a half. 
After that, I'm open. I'm ready to go. But the other thing I'd like to do maybe is coach with my son. My son's a coach. He coaches the South Bay Lakers. And, you know, we've talked about going to Europe. We've talked about going to maybe Australia and coaching. And I'd be his assistant. Uh, and he'd be the head coach. Or maybe I'd be the head coach for the first year and then turn it over to Kobe after that. So uh, I'm, I'm as healthy as I've been in a long time. I'm, I've lost so much weight, it's a joke. I'm in good shape. I am more balanced in my life. And uh, I'm, I'm definitely interested in getting back in the game as whatever, a teacher, consultant, assistant coach, and maybe out there a chance of maybe being a head coach again. I have no problem with all of it. I, I love the game, and I think the game is, is better than it's ever been. But in the same sense, it's always changing. Mm. And the coaches that know how to figure it out before anybody else usually have an advantage. Mm. You, you definitely have the resume, you know, the CV and uh, everything you've done in the past. Uh, so I'd love to see you again, um, you know, in a, in a head coaching position in the NBA. We'll see. Um, wanted to just, again, briefly uh, touch upon truth and basketball. You're really able to bring some high-caliber guests there. I've been really enjoying uh, the show. Can you just talk more about the podcast and how and why you decided to start it? Well, a couple guys here in Denver came to me and said, hey, you want to try it? And we talked a little bit philosophy. And what we try to do with truth and basketball is go deeper, go more soulful go more truthful. In the NBA, we have a lot of fibbing and a lot of spinning and a lot of, unfortunately, I have to use Trump's words, fake news. Um, so we like to go back and visit with great coaches, great general managers, anybody, players, and talk about what really happened, the real stuff, the real story. Because I think the fans like it. Uh, so, you know, I'll do it for a couple more years, see if it works out. Uh, we're expanding it a little bit. We're going, I, I'm hoping my son, my son's big into positive coaching and relationship coaching. He thinks coaches today not have to have a relationship with players. Um, we're thinking about hiring a Navy SEAL and doing one on truth and leadership. Um, so, you know, we're expanding to try to get the real stuff out there, the real story instead of the, the BS that we have on internet and gossip. And I mean, um, I just think there's a lot of junk around the game of basketball. And the more we clean it up, it's good for everybody. It's good for the game. It's good for whoever, whoever participates. Um, that, that's awesome. And uh, you, heard, you heard him folks, um, Truth in Basketball, uh, all platforms, I guess. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Everywhere. Yeah. No, I'd love, I'd love to have a European connection. You know, like actually Australia. I have a lot of, a lot of people in Australia listen to it. Mm -hmm. Seattle is the biggest market here in, in America. Uh, and we actually have expanded into uh, a podcast called Simply Seattle. It's only on the Sonics. And we've had some great interviews. Sean did one just recently. I think Deadlift Shrimp is doing one this week. Um, 
we've kind of taken a break from our game and we just started up with Danilio and uh, Darvin Ham. Um, there's a gentleman that does what I call leadership things called, uh, that we're doing one here soon, but we're going to get back up and at it here pretty soon. That's great. Um, coach, you know, thank you so much for your time. We really love to end all of our interviews with, uh, just, a you know, quick fire, a series of quick fire questions. So just really, you know, short, uh, short questions and answers. Um, all right. Who is the best player you ever coached? Sean Kemp. Most talented player I've ever coached is Sean Kemp. Um, Gary probably would punch me if I said that, but um, <laughs> all I know is in 1996 against Michael Jordan, Sean Kemp was the best player on the court. Who is, um, I guess, the biggest underachiever in NBA history as a player, in your opinion? Wow. If you give me a multiple choice, I'd feel better, but. Um, <laughs> we can skip that one and kind of return to it towards the end if you want. <laughs> you know, I coached a couple guys that, you know, I think Joe Barry Carroll was a guy that I had trouble with in Golden State. I thought he had tremendous talent, but didn't love the game enough. I think I can tell you, I'll tell you the attribute to the guys that underachieved, the love of the game, the love of the gym, the love to be there and be a basketball player. To have the freedom to be a basketball player for your life is a blessing. It's not something you should run away from. And a lot of guys, they like the lifestyle, but they don't want to make the commitment to love the game. That's, um, that's, that's some wisdom right there. <laughs> um, okay, moving, moving on. Who is the GOAT, in your opinion? It's a coin toss, but I, I, my, my, coin toss, my coin has Michael Jordan on both sides. Okay. <laughs> Makes sense. But it's, I, I give LeBron. I think LeBron, by winning now, is – and LeBron, I would, I would pay to play, watch LeBron play basketball. I'm not sure I would pay for play pay for. I mean, but LeBron is special, and as is Michael, as is Larry Bird, as is Jerry West, as is Bill Russell, as is uh, Magic Johnson, as is Karl Malone, and Tim Duncan. I think's got to be on that list. There are a lot of great ones, but the two my two favorite are LeBron and Michael, and Michael because Tariels. I'm, I'm, I'm going with him. I actually uh, recently talk, talked to uh, Rick Barry about LeBron and uh, something he said really, um, it was really, really interesting is, uh, you know, how God created LeBron and, you know, the God's equalizer, I guess. Imagine if, if he had a shot. So he created such a versatile player with, well, without a, a very high percentage shot. Imagine, imagine LeBron <laughs> shooting the hell out of the hell out of the ball. That'd be crazy. I'm not sure he'd be as good. I've seen a lot of good, good guys, good, really good players. That when they got a jump shot, they they went away from doing their their bread and butter. But I would I would I would say LeBron would be unbelievable if he had a shot. 
that, that will be a really good discussion with you and, uh, and Rick. <laughs> um, who is the best shooter ever, in your opinion? Mm. There's a lot of great ones, but I think the, be the best one I've ever seen is Steph. And it's not, there are, there are a lot of guys that shoot the ball as well as he does, catch and shoot. But no one shoots the ball off the dribble as well as Steph Curry does. It's just amazing. Steph Curry off the dribble is unbelievable. They're nice. It's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, we always said make the guy dribble. Mm -hmm. Steph Curry, it doesn't matter. You got to make him miss. <laughs> um. Who is the best defender of all time? <clears throat> oh, man. You know, the two guys I'd put on that list in my, that came to mind immediately were Gary Payton and, and Scottie Pippen. Mm -hmm. But Michael Jordan was pretty damn good, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, but... You know, in the era that I lived, lived, played, I thought I thought Gary and, and Scotty were so versatile because they could cover one, two, three, and four. LeBron, when he cared a little bit harder about defense, he could cover all five. And now maybe the best defender in the NBA is Anthony Davis because he can cover all five positions. So... Um, Bruce Bowen's got to be on the list a little bit. Uh, you know, I think Kawhi, Kawhi is unbelievable stat-wise, what he does statistically with when you put him on a player. And I would put Kawhi, you know, if he continues to keep his dedication to defense, he'd have to be on the list too. Um. This one is kind of harder, maybe even uh, not as short, but uh, do you have an all-time starting five? Sure, I'll mess with it. LeBron, Michael, Bird, Magic. That doesn't shoot the ball very well, does it? <laughs> well, you got Bird. You got one guy to make shots. So okay, one more. <laughs> I might have to put Steph Curry with that guy. <laughs> But the big guys I would put on that list, uh, you know, I didn't play against Chamberlain and Russell. And I think Tim Duncan has to be on that list, along with Shaquille O'Neal. So You got 10 players. I, you know, <laughs> I, I like running up and down the court. So big guys aren't my first preference. But to win a championship, I know you need them. And so, I mean, the two guys, I, I thought Shaq was the hardest guy to compete. The, the coach against. Uh, Duncan was the most prepared and just, just Mr. Fundamental. I mean, he didn't, San Antonio for, since they've had David Robinson and Tim Duncan, they never beat themselves. Mm -hmm. And people think the game of basketball is a game of slam dunks and beautiful plays. The game of basketball is a game of fundamentals and don't make mistakes. Don't beat yourself. And Greg Popovich and the San Antonio Spurs and Duncan and Robinson were unbelievable in not beating them. They didn't, when you beat them, you had to win the game. They weren't making mistakes. 
Um, and um, do you have an, do you have the best, I guess, international player of all time, in your opinion? Well, in my mind, the guy that would have been or should have been or could have been is Sabonis. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, after those guys, I would, I would probably drift. And I'm probably, I mean, I love that Le Shrimp, but I don't think he's very much European. I mean, he's, yeah, yeah but he's a great European player. The guy I liked coaching a lot was Tony Kukoc. Uh, but the guy that I have a lot of, I think, special is I think Paul Gasol's got to be on that list too. Because he, he's got a couple championships, had a long career, and it was always pretty damn good. And he's won a lot with Spain as well, so definitely. Um, all right, Coach, that's about it. Once again, thank you so much for your time. Wish you all the best in the future. Hope to see you coaching again. And uh, looking forward to all of your uh, uh, new episodes on your podcast. Thank you. Uh, tell, ask, I got one question for you. How about, uh, tell me about Yugoslavian basketball, Croatian basketball. Is it coming back or is it? Uh, the league, no. So the league, especially in Croatia, is, is, is uh, horrible. <laughs> uh, I guess we don't see a lot of uh, funding and finances. And at the end of the day, you know, you got to, pay the players to come in. Um, we don't see a lot of uh, good kind of systematic programs and clubs and, and coaching. So it's not what it, I guess, used to be. Um, but I mean, we have a, I would, I would say we are really, we are a really talented area in terms of, uh, you know, just um, players and, you know, physical talent. When you look, when you look at the league and how many players from this area are in the NBA, you'd be surprised to see that our national league is horrible. So <laughs> basketball um, is probably the third most, or maybe even fourth most popular sport here in Croatia after, you know, soccer or football, uh, tennis, and I don't know, handball. So it's not what it used to be, unfortunately, but a lot of people follow the NBA and love watching the NBA, love following the players in the NBA. Uh, you know, the Croatian players and the ex-Yugoslavian uh, players. But yeah, that, that's the situation here. <laughs> so what's the best European basketball country? Basketball country? Which country has now got the best league, I guess? The best league? Um, Turkey? I, Greece? I would, I would have to go with either... Russia? Yeah, I would have to go with either uh, Spain or Turkey. I think it's kind of close, but, you know, Greece is up there. Russia has some really strong teams, but to be honest with you, um, I've, I, I don't follow EuroLeague as much as, as, as the NBA. <laughs> well, so better, I, I, I would think Europe would go to 48 minute games. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'd be interesting because there would then be a better comparison because I, what I've learned is the eight minutes, is really the biggest difference. The biggest difference between Europe and the NBA is eight minutes. And um, okay, that's that's true. But the court as well isn't the court uh, in the NBA a bit uh, more spread out? Just you know, you got more spacing and 
Now, that's something Luka Doncic talked a lot about when he came over to the NBA. He said he felt like he could score more more easily in the NBA than the US. Well, the rules the rules don't allow you to the, the plug the lane. And I think more of the NBA offensive philosophies are more spacing oriented than execution oriented. But still, I mean, the NBA good good defensive teams know how to crowd the paint and to crowd the ball, but. The game in the NBA now has gotten how to control the ball. The ball is more important than execution now. How to cover pick and rolls, how to cover the draw and kick game. Mm -hmm. But we'll never know. So it's always going to change. Thank you, Coach. That's great. Um, just, yeah, really enjoyed having you on. Once again, wish you all the best in the future and uh, hope to talk to you soon. I'm glad you're having some success. Hopefully it'll be powerful for you. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you, Coach. Bye-bye. Thanks, Harry.